Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 23rd. Up first is Alexander Dalziel, writing on why Canada should remember to focus on Ukraine, current geopolitical tensions, and what our national interests are as the Russia-Ukraine war continues on its anniversary week. After two years of a Russia-initiated war that has killed thousands of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers, upset world order, worsened inflation, and cost millions of taxpayer dollars, Canadians are getting a little tired of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, polling shows. But now is not the time to lose focus. The February 24 anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Ukrainians' inspiring resistance is an opportunity to reassess and reaffirm the importance of Canada's commitment to Ukraine and a more secure Canada. The House of Commons agreed to update a free trade agreement with Ukraine on February 6, but, unusually, the Conservative Party opposed it, claiming not to support some of the environmental provisions it contained. That vote was taken as Canadians from across the political spectrum are feeling less inclined to support Ukraine, according to a recent Angus Reid poll. The number of those polled who said Canada is doing too much has almost doubled to 25%, particularly among Conservative voters. Interest overall is waning, as only 45% say they are closely following the conflict in the news, down from 66% in May 2022. But after two years, we should pay attention, because support for Ukraine is as important as ever, even if events elsewhere threaten to shift our attention. The conflict is but one part of an increasingly turbulent global picture, extending from a combusting Middle East to Serbia interfering with its Balkan neighbors to Azerbaijan, ejecting its entire Armenian population. Insecurity abounds in parts of Africa and South America. The Economist Intelligence Unit tells us democracy is doing poorly worldwide. Atop this, U.S.-China tensions sit unresolved. Most significantly, China and Russia are creating a colossal geopolitical block in Eurasia, with daunting fundamentals in natural resources, technology, and industrial capacity. The authoritarian dynamic evolving between them is now closer together than ever. They have a shared interest in pushing back the United States and its allies, that is, Canada and our allies, so they can have a free hand in neighboring countries. The conflict in Ukraine represents a pivotal arena, and if left unchecked, that dynamic will have three key implications for the West and Canada. First, an abandoned Ukraine would destabilize Europe. Anyone saying Russia's ambitions end at Ukraine's western borders is, at the very least, overconfident. Moscow openly stated in 2021 that it wanted NATO rolled back in Europe. The tensions unleashed even if Russia only occupied all of Ukraine would cause the most severe deterioration in European security since the early Cold War. The surest way to keep Canada and NATO out of a broader war with Russia, not get into one, is to support Ukraine. Second, a Russian victory in Ukraine imperils Canadian interests in the Indo-Pacific region. Since 2022, we have seen China's aggressiveness towards Taiwan mount, 
A flagging commitment to Ukraine tells the Communist Party of China a lot about the reserves of fortitude, or lack thereof, of Taiwan's foreign supporters, should it invade the island. That increases the likelihood of an armed China-U.S. confrontation and an interruption to the supply of computer chips our economy depends on given that most are manufactured in Taiwan. Third, Russia and China are enjoying unprecedented cooperation in the Arctic. While to date this is mostly economic, two authoritarian governments projecting influence in the Arctic corrodes Canada's regional governance. Russia already has the world's largest icebreaker fleet. China, a non-Arctic state, is on course to have almost as many polar-class heavy icebreakers as Canada and the U.S. combined. Conceding Russia's imperialism in Ukraine is unlikely to encourage Moscow to abide by international law when it comes time to settle maritime boundaries with Canada in the Arctic Ocean. To protect Canadian security and prosperity amid this flux, Canada will need partners. Seen in this light, Ukraine is a good investment. Its political fundamentals are strengthening. Elections there are real. It has a flourishing civil society fighting for and achieving transparency and accountability to dismantle corruption, including in the military. Ukrainians openly criticize President Vladimir Zelensky during a war. In Russia, even calling it a war lands you in jail. That speaks to basic political rights that Ukrainians have won and do not take for granted. Compare that to Russia, where the leading opposition figure of the last decade, Alexei Navalny, died in mysterious circumstances at 47 years old in a penal colony last week. He had already survived several attempts on his life and health. Keep in mind that we hear about corruption in Ukraine because the media actually reports it there. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin has destroyed the media to prevent such exposure. And, by the way, he will be re-elected for another six years in Shampoles next month. The threat is not going away. On the battlefield, Ukraine needs immediate help. It is fighting hard. For instance, without a navy of its own, it is regularly sinking Russian warships, allowing grain to reach Africa and the Middle East, bringing down food prices and tackling a key component of inflation. But it is under pressure, badly outnumbered by Russian forces and undersupplied by its foreign supporters, slowly conceding ground on some fronts and holding the line in others all at great cost to Russian forces. Russia's economy is on a war footing. North Korea's artillery shell production for Russia is outcompeting the collective military-industrial capacity of NATO. Regardless of future U.S. choices, we have committed European partners. Europe's monetary, material, and political commitments to Ukraine are large. Cooperation with NATO and European Union allies defrays the financial costs. Enhanced Canada-Europe cooperation on defense production, for instance, would produce the armaments and technologies that Ukraine and Canada and Europe require. If Canadians' enthusiasm for Ukraine is flagging because of money alone, we should reconsider the cost in the world as it is, not as it was or as we wish it to be. Defending our security and prosperity is going to get much more expensive, regardless of what we choose to do in Ukraine. 
That is an inconvenient fact for all of Canada's political parties. Our politicians, and let's be honest, we Canadians, have so internalized the idea that we can free-ride on the Americans for security that we indulge the belief that our politics consists of domestic issues only, such as cutting taxes or spending on social programs. But foreign policy is the other side of the statehood coin. To be a country, you have to have both. We have forgotten that over the last 30 years. Internecine debates about day-to-day -day politics are well and good, but they cannot become our sole obsession. Whether we like it or not, Canada's interests are tied up in what happens abroad. If we want to have politics for the left, right, and center at home, then doing all we can to support Ukraine's cause is fundamentally the right choice. That was a commentary by Alexander Dalziel. He is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Matt Malone, who is an assistant professor at the Thompson Rivers University Faculty of Law. He is writing today on Trudeau's closed government, the lack of transparency from Canadian security and intelligence agencies, and detailing why this is the case. Secrecy has become a key hallmark of the Trudeau government. From refusing to disclose the legal advice relied upon to invoke the Emergencies Act, to invoking a record number of secret orders in council, to declining to reveal even the existence of colossal contracts, the early promises about a government that would be open by default have long since vanished. It's been quite the journey. In 2014, after eight years of the Harper government, Trudeau's first private member's bill as an opposition MP, the Transparency Act, offered bold promises to revitalize the access to information systems. More promises followed in the lead-up to the 2015 election. But after eight years of Trudeau's own government, newly published data on the performance of the access to information system paints the picture of a system in terminal decline. Those statistics show many federal institutions now regularly fail to answer access to information requests within legally required timelines. For example, Public Services and Procurement Canada, which is under scrutiny for its practices with respect to wasteful third-party consultant contracts, only responded to requests last year within lawfully mandated timeframes 24% of the time. Canadian security and intelligence agencies have promised more transparency. But last year, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service only provided full and unredacted copies of records in 0.3% of requests answered. The Communications Security Establishment, which is set to obtain vast and largely unchecked powers through Bill C-26, closed less than one in seven requests within lawful timelines. Redactions are a significant problem. The Privy Council Office, which supports the Prime Minister and Cabinet, released 700 records last year, but invoked Cabinet confidences to redact information 794 times. Under Harper, the Privy Council Office preserved for 10 years most records created in the process of responding to access to information requests. Under Trudeau, this document preservation period has been reduced to just two years. These practices of over-redaction and destruction of documents 
harm the preservation of Canadian history, contribute to misinformation, and undermine the purpose of our access to information laws, namely, to foster an open and democratic society and to allow public debate on the conduct of our institutions. The government has cited translation costs as a barrier to putting in the public domain copies of previously released requests. But how often is translation even requested by people using the system? Last year, out of nearly 210,000 requests closed for access to information, there was just one request for translation from English to French. There are no requests at all for translation from French to English. Funding for the access to information systems remains far too precarious. The budget of the Office of the Information Commissioner, which reviews complaints about the system, is supposed to be independent, but its budget depends on a federal institution, the Treasury Board. That is often the subject of the Commissioner's investigations. It is no surprise, then, that last year the Treasury Board rejected the Commissioner's requests for more funding to deal with an uptick in complaints. Indeed, last July, the Commissioner noted that complaints had grown by 185% since she assumed her role in 2018. She has since concluded in her latest annual report, it is clear that improving transparency is not a priority for the government. Instead, the government is now teeming with employees who specialize in communications. More than 4,000 federal government employees now have that word in their job title. Outside of government, investigative journalist Cecil Rosner estimates that the ratio of public relations consultants to journalists is now 14 to 1, like the federal government's penchant for hiring consultants and communication specialists. Lawyers have become far too deeply enmeshed in the system. Sustainable Development Technology Canada, which is embroiled in controversy, sought legal advice in a startling 67% of the requests it answered last year. The Patented Medicine Prices Review Board did so for 93% of requests answered. These staffing and funding priorities are set against the backdrop of an existential crisis facing Canadian journalism as detailed in an ongoing series in these pages. As veteran journalist Dean Beebe notes, media have been abandoning access to information systems at provincial and federal levels. Is that any surprise? The departure from an ethos of open by default to one that is closed by design goes to the heart of the government's credibility problem these days. Broken promises erode trust. New ones fall on skeptical ears. That was Matt Malone appearing in today's Hub. He is an assistant professor at the Thompson Rivers University Faculty of Law. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to the Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.